So, well, praise the Lord, and we are in the book of Matthew. We're still in chapter 8. I told you I was going to back up and focus in on a few things. I want to look at verses 19 through 22 today. And we have a number of things going on in these verses. And in verse 22, we have probably one of the most difficult sayings of Yeshua. But it goes like this. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Yeshua replied, Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go bury my father. But Yeshua told him, Follow me and let the dead bury the dead. So here's the deal. Yeshua's fame has begun to spread in the miracles that he's done, the demons and sickness that he's shown authority over are, are being known. And naturally this is going to draw a crowd. And some from the leader of leadership of Israel will come to find out what's going on. Others, when they see thing, these things, want to be one of Yeshua's disciples in hopes of learning from him. Well, in these verses, that's exactly what we see. We have a teacher of the law come to Yeshua as he has seen him healing the sick and driving out demons. And he says, Rabbi, I'll follow you wherever you go. You see, in other words, he's asking Yeshua to become his disciple. And we've covered this many times before. And this really isn't the focus of the message, but for the sake of those who haven't heard it, I want to give just a short version of what a disciple was in the first century so that we know what he's asking. In the first century, rabbis would gather their students or disciples, the rabbi, of course, being the teacher. When what most don't understand is that this didn't happen in a classroom setting. The student didn't get up in the morning and say, Honey, I'm going to school. Yeshua has prepared an amazing lesson plan for us today. It happened that most often, and particularly with an itinerant rabbi like Yeshua, is that they would follow the rabbi about. And if the rabbi left for the far reaches for a couple of weeks or months, you went with him. And you learned all along the way. You see, it was the task of the disciple to learn the rabbi's teachings word for word. But not only that, how he did everything, how he said the blessings and the prayers, and most important, how he walked through life in general. As it has been said in one of the rabbi's famous sayings, to grow dusty in the dust of his feet. And so in this type of relationship, it stands that if the rabbi suffered hardships, the disciples suffered hardships. And so the student learned through hardships. The student learned by example. Students would be attracted to the rabbi by the pious life that he lived. Well, here we have a teacher of the law. One who's already been taught in this fashion. Well versed in the Torah, asking Yeshua to follow him in this type of relationship, hoping to learn how he has such power, such authority. He's already studied Torah. He's a Torah scholar, trained in the traditions of the people and in the Torah. But he has no such power. His rabbi, he had no such power. And Yeshua, sensing that he may be not as serious as his words convey, 
proceeds to tell him the high cost of discipleship with Rabbi Yeshua. Before we get to that high cost of discipleship with Yeshua, he says something to the teacher that we kind of sometimes read by. He says, the Son of Man. And this is the first of over 20 times he'll use this of himself in the book of Matthew. Now most teachers until quite recently would tell us that this is a term that wasn't associated with the rabbi or with with the Messiah at this time. In other words, Messiah and Son of Man didn't equate, at least in in common thought. And we can see this if we look at the book of Matthew in chapter 16. In verse 13 it says, When Yeshua came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, Who do the people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Notice, not one of them said Messiah. The other thing about this term Son of Man is that it could be used of an eschatological figure, the Son of Man, just as Yeshua spoke of it, or it could be a generic term for just the Son of Adam, Son of Man, just a man. And note, it could be used to say something like, well, Should the son of man be a slave? In other words, should the son of Adam be a slave? Should any man be a slave? But as we saw in Matthew chapter 16, the son of man is also an end time figure who will come and will judge the wicked. And I found a good article uh, from the Encyclopedia Judaica that gives us an accurate summation of what Christian and Jewish scholars have come up with over the years. It says this, the son of man has a superhuman, heavenly sublimity. He is the cosmic judge at the end of time. Seated on the throne of God, he will judge the whole human race with the aid of the heavenly hosts, consigning the just to the blessedness and sinners to the pit of hell. And he will execute the sentence he passes. Frequently he is identified with the Messiah as in the book of Enoch, chapters 37 through 71 in Ezra, 4th Ezra. Though in the Dead Sea Scrolls the concept of the Son of Man is also reflected in them, the eschatological figure occurring in the Thanksgiving Scroll resembles or is identical with the Son of Man of other Jewish literature. In one of the fragments from the Dead Sea Scrolls, Melchizedek figures as the judge at the end of time. In the company with angels from on high, he will judge man and the wicked spirits of Belial. Thus the Son of Man could even be identified with the biblical Melchizedek, according to a mythological understanding. Thus it seems the concept preceded the final identification of the Son of Man with the Messiah, which became common at the end of the Second Temple period. And so at this time, it wasn't, he wasn't commonly identified with the Messiah. The Son of Man was because of Daniel, the book of Enoch, and other writings considered an end-time figure. And at this time, the Son of Man not necessarily identified with the Messiah. And it's also a common term for just man, as used in the book of Ezekiel. But here Yeshua doesn't say a Son of Man. He says the Son of Man. A very specific use. And He'll use it this way 20 times, over 20 times. And so what is he attempting to do? Why does Matthew find it necessary to include this saying of Yeshua, so many of these statements in his gospel? 
Why does Yeshua address who the Son of Man is directly with His disciples? Is He trying to identify with this end time figure so that the people would understand that He's going to judge the earth? Because it certainly isn't the end time. Although that's probably part of it. Even with messianic figures, they were looking for someone who would do exactly that, who would come and take on the forces of evil, Rome, and restore sovereignty to Israel. I think that might be part of it. But when we look at the book of Daniel, when you look at the book of Daniel, I think we shall come to an understanding why Yeshua is bringing this up so many times and preparing his disciples. Matthew includes the term more than any other writers of the Gospels because he's writing to the Hebrews. And of course, Yeshua is speaking to Hebrews. And so the obvious conclusion is that Yeshua is attempting to connect some dots for the Hebrews between the Son of Man and Messiah for his disciples and those he comes in contact with. One, of the, one thing all of the Gospel writers bring forth is the concept that the Messiah began well before His coming, that He was in existence well before His coming, that He was a heavenly figure well before His coming, pre-existing His coming into the world. And only after they establish that, only after Matthew establishes that and John establishes that, do they move on to His ministry on earth. Messiah being a heavenly figure was not commonly thought of in the first century either. Most were expecting a righteous man. Yes, most were expecting a conquering figure who would defeat Rome and restore the sovereignty of Israel. Most, however, were not expecting a heavenly figure. But they were expecting one who would be born like a man in the usual way, in the usual sense. And God would bless him. God would empower him to do those things. If we go to the book of Daniel and we compare it with the life of Yeshua, I think we'll understand why the emphasis on the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13 says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. And so Daniel tells us much the same thing that we would read about in the book of Enoch only maybe not in such great detail as the book of Enoch. But he says, one like the Son of Man is going to be given power and authority over all peoples. He says he's led into the presence of the Ancient of Days and given power and authority. Think about that. What man has ever been led into the presence of the Ancient of Days and still stood Many people see this passage as an end times passage where Yeshua is led into God's presence. Yeshua, his emphasis on the term Son of Man is aligning his disciples' belief systems for what's going to happen. That he will not do what Messiah was expected to do until after this happens. He's not trying to align their expectations with the book of Enoch But listen to how this passage relates to our New Covenant Scriptures because Yeshua is actually going to fulfill this passage of Daniel. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 7, he says, 
It says, He said to them, It is not for you to know the times and the dates the Father has set by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And after He said this, He was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud received Him from their sight. And what I want you to see here is that Yeshua is taken up in a cloud. And now being taken up in a cloud, where do you suppose he goes? Well, we all know. Mark tells us in chapter 16, verse 19. After the Lord Yeshua had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. Yeshua is taken to heaven and ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days. And what's he doing there? Well, Shaul tells us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 32, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Messiah Yeshua who died. More than that, who was raised to life at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. You see, the Son of Man is in heaven. He's been ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days and he's been given authority, glory, Sovereign power and all peoples, nations, men of every language worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, just as Daniel said. And he's now interceding on our behalf and he's making judgments about the peoples of the earth now. He's forgiving sins now. He's standing between us and God so that when God looks at us, He sees Yeshua and His redemptive work versus our sin. And that's why it's so important to know Yeshua is the Son of Man. Let's read on just a little bit farther in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9. They were looking intently up into the sky as He was going and when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Yeshua, whom you have seen taken into heaven, will come back in the same way as you have seen Him go into heaven. In the same way that they saw him, the Son of Man leave and enter into the presence of the Ancient of Days, as Daniel said, He's going to return because after all, as we've seen, the Son of Man is an end-time judge. That's why Yeshua says this to Caiaphas in chapter 26 of Matthew in verse 63. Then Yeshua said to him, I charge you under the oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Yeshua replied, but I say to all of you from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One coming on the clouds of heaven. And so in the same way we saw the Son of Man leave this age to be ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days and receive power and authority, He's going to return to execute that power and that authority and judge the earth. He was ushered into the presence of the Ancient of Days on the cloud of heaven and when he returns it will be on the clouds of heaven as well. Though when he returns it won't just be the disciples who see him but every eye will see him and everyone will declare in one way or another Yeshua is Lord. And hopefully they declare it before they see him coming. So with this statement, Yeshua begins to align His disciples' understanding with the truth of what God is doing. And Matthew includes these statements so that the people's belief systems will be aligned with the truth. Now, 
Let's read this other verse here. It says, this hard verse in Matthew chapter 8, verse 22. It says, Another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Yeshua told him, Follow me and let the dead bury the dead. And this is a really hard passage because it goes against Torah. Torah command to honor your father and mother. It was one of the foremost responsibilities of a person to see to the respectful burial of their mother and father. And so, because of this statement, as you can imagine, it's been used by anti-missionaries and so forth to discredit Yeshua. And Christian commentators have many interpretations as well, but there's some problems with this passage. Let's look at one. First, uh, the first of the problems is, first, and most obvious, if the man's father is dead, why is the man there with Yeshua and not with his father? I mean, it's a Jewish custom not to leave the body alone until it's been placed in the tomb. Let's look at another one. Perhaps the man's father isn't dead, but he's dying. And he's asking Yeshua permission to wait until his death. Well, the problem there is just as obvious. After this man has seen what Yeshua has done, I think the man would have said, Yeshua, can you come and heal my father? He's dying. And so these are just a few of the problems with this statement, but I think we can understand this if we understand Jewish burial customs of the day. And we may see Yeshua may not be as barbaric as this statement would seem, because it does seem rather. In the first century, a burial would go something like this. Upon the death of one's loved one, you would secure a cave and seal it, Seal the entrance to prevent the animals from defiling the body. They would prepare the body with spices and seal it up in the tomb. And the body would lay there for a year or so. And then the relatives would return and the body would have turned to dust with the exception of the bones. And then they would gather the bones and they would put them in an ossuary, a small box, about the size of a femur bone, I guess. Maybe with some inscription on it, maybe not. So here's the deal. More than likely, the man's father died a year ago. And the man is asking for permission to go and gather his father's bones and put them in an ossuary. And to that, Yeshua says, let the dead take care of the dead. Still, even with that explanation, it seems a bit bit hard. But I think that's Yeshua's intent here. He's telling the men the high cost of following, of being a disciple of Yeshua. To the Torah scholar, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. Samuel Locks, in his commentary on the New Testament, suggests that Yeshua might be referring to the enemies of Israel as... uh, as the birds of the air is a term that's used for the nations of the earth in apocalyptic works, and foxes is a term used in the book of Enoch for the Ammonites. And so Yeshua is saying, enemies have places to lay their head, but the Son of Man does not. But I think it's more than likely that Yeshua is just looking at the least of God's creatures have a place to rest their heads, but the Son of Man has no place to rest his head. And if you follow me, If you're my disciple, you too will have no place to rest your head. If we look at the lives of the disciples, we can see that that's true of Peter. 
John, Shaul, and the others. To the young man, he says, follow me, let the dead bury the dead. And if the intent is, as I said, Yeshua is telling these people the high cost of discipleship, then this statement starts to make sense in that family obligations are of no consequence when it comes to the kingdom being established in the hearts of men. Yeshua in His walk will forsake these things and you as a disciple walking in the dust of His feet will as well. If we look at Yeshua from the time His ministry began, there's no rest for Him. There was no time of rest for Him. He made enemies. The established order of things did not appreciate the good that He did. They hunted Him. They looked for ways to accuse Him. He confronted their error. They didn't like it. And if we looked at His disciples, we find the same thing. Not only did they not have a place to rest their heads, but they suffered in this life as well. And in and even to death. Listen to this account of Shaul's ministry. In first, Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and exposed to death again and again. Five times received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. Spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've constantly been on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, in danger from false brothers. I've labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I've been cold and naked and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the congregations. Now I use Shaul because he had the occasion to recount these things, but you should understand that's the cost of discipleship. If we had read accounts of the other disciples, they would read much the same way. To a person they suffered to death. And it didn't even end with the twelve. All the disciples of the first century and the second and the third and the fourth suffered the same hardships. And remember, when I say disciple, I mean those who were disciples of Yeshua. Who did the things He did. Who walked the way He walked. Who taught the things He taught and had no place to rest their heads. Persecuted and rejected by Christians of the East, like Rome, all because they were true disciples of Yeshua. They kept the Sabbath as He did. They did the festivals as He did. They followed Torah as He did. And because they were His disciples and they walked in the dust of Yeshua's feet, they too suffered and eventually disappeared from history. We covered all of this with historical data when we did the study of the life of the early disciples of Yeshua. They had no place to rest their heads. The cost of true discipleship is no different today. It will cost you your family. It will cost you many of your former friends. They'll ostracize you. They'll persecute you. And they'll give you no rest. Those who followed the way of the church of the West or Rome will hate you 
and call you under the law. And they'll say you're in jeopardy of losing your salvation. They'll say you've forsaken Messiah for the law. Your family will ostracize you because you're not at the family yearly gatherings any longer. You're not exchanging gifts in the winter any longer, gathering colored eggs in the spring. Your church will ostracize you because you're following the Bible and not your, your pastor. People will hate you for you stand against things that are abominations to God. Your work will hate you because you have to have all of these Sabbaths off that no one else cares about. You see, that's the cost of discipleship. That's the cost of being a true follower of Messiah Yeshua, walking in the footsteps of Messiah. There are easier ways. You could compromise. But then you're not a true follower. You're not a true disciple of Yeshua because He didn't compromise. See, we all need to ask ourselves, are we up for the task? Are we really up for the task? Yeshua is asking these men, are you up for the task of being a disciple? Are you ready to go through life without the pleasures of this life, with no rest? But only this overwhelming pursuit of the kingdom? Are you ready for this overwhelming need to see change and see God's kingdom established in the hearts of men? Are you ready to leave family? Are you ready to do the things contrary to the traditions of your peoples? And for all intents and purposes look like the young man asking to gather his father's bones to look disgraceful by the standards of this age? Leave family, friends, religion, tradition... Are you ready to be uncompromising? Even if it costs you family and friends? If you are, then Yeshua is saying, then you're ready for discipleship. And if not, you'll not be a disciple of Yeshua. But you'll end up being someone else's disciple. Not ready? Then as in the case of the man caring for his father's bones then you can go home to your family. Or as in the case of the Torah teacher, you can go back to the religion you came out of, be it a church or a synagogue, because you're not up to the struggle of being a disciple. Even in the course of pursuing the truths of following Messiah, you'll lose and suffer loss among those who appear to be on the same walk with you. Yeshua did. He was betrayed by one of the twelve. You see, you have to struggle against error as Shaul did. Stay the course Yeshua laid out. Yeshua never once gave in to error. He never once waited until the Sabbath was over to heal someone who was suffering because it would have been easier to do so. Never once did he compromise the truths of God for the sake of being easier, for the sake of being peaceful, because he sought after the true peace of being one with the Father. You have people come to you with weird doctrines about government and conspiracies and weird teachings and far-out garbage, and all it does is keep you from loving your neighbor as yourself and trusting God. You have to fight against those things. Stay the course with Yeshua. Stay the course that He stayed. The teaching of sound doctrine. 
Loving God, loving your neighbor. You know, there were conspiracies in Yeshua's day, but I didn't see him get involved in any of them. I don't read where he got involved with any of them. Shaul didn't get involved, but he stayed the course. He ran the race, and we must as well. So let's commit ourselves to be disciples of Yeshua. Let's not get involved with the garbage of this age, no matter what it is. But let's stay the course and remain in love with Messiah and with each other. Let's stay the course with Yeshua, growing dusty in the dust of His feet. Amen? Amen. Hallelujah.